Hello, and welcome to another episode of Daily American Press's Chatting with Abby. Today I have a very special guest, and that's Real Truth Cactus. Hey, Cactus. Hey, Abby. Thanks for having me on today. It is my pleasure. Now, where can you be found, Cactus? I can be found on Twitter at Real Truth Cactus. I can also be found on Locals at Verdict Plus. It's great places to find me and my content. Awesome. And is it true that you are the cactus from Verdict? It is true. I am the cactus who perches behind Ted Cruz during the Verdict podcast. It is a real honor to be talking to a cactus that's been in the same room as Ted Cruz. (laughs) Well, thank you. I enjoy (laughs) sitting on the podcast, listening to all the cool things they have to talk about. It's so cool. They don't let you talk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually talk quite a bit on Verdict Plus. So if you actually want to hear the cactus talk, you can listen, obviously, to your podcast. Plus. Perfect. So Cactus is here to talk about books with me, and one aspect of modern books in particular, and modern young adult books in particular, particular. So Cactus, I have I have a book to introduce to you. Okay. Okay. It's called Girl, Serpent, Thorn by Melissa Bashardust, or something. I'm not <laughs> sure how to pronounce that last name. And this is a... This is a fairy tale kind of turned on its head. It's it's billed as a kind of Rapunzel, Sleeping Beauty mashup sort of thing. Okay, cool. And uh, it's for it's for kind of marketed to teen girls. This is the the inside cover. Okay. There was and there was not, as all stories begin, a princess cursed to be poisonous to the touch. But for Soraya, who has lived her life hidden away, apart from her family, safe only in her gardens, it's not just a story. As the day of her twin brother's wedding approaches, Soraya must decide if she's willing to step outside the shadows for the first time. Below in the dungeon is a demon who holds the knowledge she craves, the answer to her freedom. Above is a young man who isn't afraid of her whose eyes lingered not with fear, but with an understanding of who she is beneath the poison. Soraya thought she knew her place in the world, but when her choices lead to consequences she never imagined, she begins to question who she is and who she is becoming, human or demon, princess or monster. Wow, that sounds like a very good book. Kind of reminds me of the Cinder series. I don't know if you ever read that. Yeah. Um, Very much another one of those fairy tales turn on its head classic yeah so you would never have guessed that this is a lesbian love story what excuse me what this book is a lesbian romance that's not all it is but it's a strong element of the plot interesting yeah there's there's no hint to that given in the synopsis not at all the demon that's mentioned uh, in the in the dungeon with the answers to her questions is female and mm. is the love. Interesting. Okay. The boy who's mentioned turns out to be the actual antagonist. Spoilers. And 
I'm used to LGBTQ plus books being widely marketed as such. Right. There's a lot of them being published, particularly in YA, but they're usually very, very marketed that way. Right. But this one, even the, I bought this one on the recommendation of the bookseller. She said she read it in one day. She loved it. Not a hint in the whole conversation or anywhere on the cover that it's, that it is what it is. That must be really frustrating for you to get this book and to read it and for it to be in a, I guess, book category you weren't anticipating. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where I don't necessarily have a problem reading something with an LGBTQ element. I'm, I'm an adult. I, I really don't mind if it, if it's kind of a sideline plot. I have a romance in a story. I like romance, but I would like it to be heterosexual romance. <laughs> well, and let me guess, you yourself are <laughs> heterosexual. <laughs> yes, as a yeah. matter of fact. <laughs> I mean, that makes perfect sense. We tend to prefer stories we relate to. So if we're given a story that we cannot really relate to at all, without being at least given some inkling of it, you know, that's really frustrating. Yeah. Have you ever, have you ever run into something like that in your reading? Actually, now that you mention it, I have, there's this really fabulous book series called uh, Scythe by Neil Schusterman. And it's another young, yeah, it's it's another young adult novel and it deals with really heavy themes like (laughs) life and death and the meaning thereof. But for whatever reason, in the very last book, he decides to throw in a transgender character just mm-hmm. really out of nowhere and make that character a central plot point to the whole story, which I found very odd. And if I remember correctly, it wasn't just that the character was trans, it was that there was a whole state or country in that world where yes, one was genderless or something like that. Yeah, they essentially bring their children up to be gender fluid, I guess is the term to not. Mm. Uh, if I remember correctly, the character Jericho uh, mm. felt more of a woman or a man when it was cloudy and the other one when it was sunny. Right. And I... I loved the book series and I even mm-hmm. liked the character. Um, right. The character, his or herself, had a lot of depth, but that particular nuance of the character felt very preachy, I guess is the term. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel natural. It didn't feel natural to the story in any way. They kept bringing it up in conversation. Uh, yeah. The character even made one of the main characters feel like she should start considering living life that way too, which it felt like it was added just for the sake of having that societal conversation, because that's what everyone's talking about right now. Yeah. And I, I see that. I see that a lot, a little bit of that bait and switch, both in books and in TV movies where you get 
uh, I think of the TV show Once Upon a Time, where there's, there's oh, a yeah. character who and is just randomly, she's been in a heterosexual relationship previously, and, and then suddenly she's just into girls. They did the same thing in Brooklyn Nine-Nine with this kind of... Um, yeah. Uh, with Rosa, if you remember. Yeah. It, and sometimes it, it feels more... Na- like with Rosa, it felt a little bit more natural than sure. I think in other times. Sometimes they completely rewrite a character and sometimes it's it's a little bit more believable, but it's still really... It feels kind of jarring. Yeah. Yes. Jarring's a good word. Another example I've come across in the YA world, which I knew going in to the series, is The Raven Cycle by Maggie Stiefvater, which I really, really love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you are, I think it's the last book before you discover that one of the, one of the main characters is only in, t- he's, male and he's only into men and then another is bi so you thought he was only into women the whole series and then they get together in the last book but it's it was less jarring because it it was intended to be that way from the beginning and i think that when the author in is writing it that way because that's the story it's a Mm. little less jarring right but for a parent who's trying to keep an eye on what their kids are reading and what they're ingesting when it's not marketed this way, but it includes this, or if it's a bait and switch, the parent could have read the first book in that series in the size series or the Raven boy series and not had any concerns and had no idea about the bait and switch later. Right. And that's honestly a huge concern, especially for, conservative parents who are looking to raise their children in a particular way, right? If Mm -hmm. I want to raise my children with very strong Christian beliefs, then I don't necessarily want them reading transgender books or books where there's that bait and switch. Not to say that they couldn't handle it when they were older, but when they're Mm -hmm. in that young and impressionable age, You know, I don't know if they're necessarily, their worldview isn't strong enough yet at that point. Yeah, I don't think any parent who's being honest with themselves, who holds any type of worldview, is going to want their child imbibing something that cuts against it in any significant way. At the same time, by the time you and I have kids who are old enough to read books of this nature... I have to start wondering if it's going to be such a massive part of society that we just have to start training so much younger, uh, even how to interact with it. There's definitely a concern there. Cause I mean, you see just now in the news in pre-K they're talking about gender identity mm-hmm. and gender dysphoria. It's a very strange phenomenon we're seeing where, A lot of schools, a lot of places in public education are really pushing this gender, uh, gender identity narrative, this sexual orientation narrative on very young children. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it is only going to get worse as you and I get older and as our future children get older. I think a lot of parents have found that they were behind the curve that even with sex education, that 
by the time they thought even thought of the need to start training their kid in something, the school had already beat them to the punch. Right. That I do feel like that is an unfortunate failing on unconservative parents' part where we're so concerned with protecting our kids from things sometimes, uh, protecting them from the sex discussion, protecting them from talking about drugs, protecting them from talking about uh, anything that's controversial, right? You want them to grow up as innocent as possible. No one can blame a parent for that. But Mm -hmm. at some point, you do have to talk to them about it, especially when society is around you screaming. We got to prepare our children with the tools they need to be able to face that and to be strong against it. Yeah. And with a lot of these things, it's not a question of you being able to protect them. It's a question of, are they going to face it alone or are they going to face it with you? That's a good point because I know just in my own experience, I was homeschooled uh, Mm -hmm. and I was raised in very much a protected atmosphere, which Mm -hmm. was good because I grew up with very strong conservative values. But at the same time, I also felt like I had no one to talk to when I was trying to understand all of those more controversial things. I didn't necessarily feel like I could talk to my parents about it because I knew it made them uncomfortable. It would make me uncomfortable. Everybody would be uncomfortable and no one wants to deal with that. (laughs) Yeah. I think we're going to have to recognize that we are living in a really wicked world. Right. And... Maybe it's the same way as if a child grows up in a war zone as opposed to grows up in a regular normal community where they just have to be taught different things, not just look both ways before crossing the road, but also right. you know make sure no one's out there shooting. And maybe that's just kind of how our kids are going to have to grow up. I like that you bring in the analogy about it being like a war zone. Because, I mean, the Bible constantly tells us, you know, we are living in a war zone, a spiritual Mm -hmm. war zone. We are fighting for the hearts and minds of our children and our youth. We're trying to protect them from these ideologies that have seeped into the public educational system. They've seeped into our literature. They've seeped into our culture. And you're right. Now we have to prepare them for battle, essentially. Mm. I also wonder, and this is, I mean, obviously I'm not coming from a place, I'm not a parent, I'm not coming from a place of knowledge other than having been a child, but I think a lot of times parents want to push off the point at which their child has to make a decision between their upbringing and the world for as long as possible to have as much weight behind their upbringing. And I do think sometimes making the decision sooner is actually better. It makes a stronger decision if the kid is choosing for themselves and being tested all while having the parent right beside them instead of never making that decision for themselves, hitting college and facing things that they don't know how to answer all by themselves. And then you see those kids just immediately falling away from their faith. Yeah. I think that is a common problem that's talked about in Uh, Christian youth, right? We think bringing Mm -hmm. our children up in church, right, is more than enough, right? If they go to church every Sunday, every Wednesday, or whenever your church holds their youth time, they'll be fine. 
But mm-hmm. if you're not spending that daily time in the word with them, if you're not spending time having the tough conversations, having the big uncomfortable conversations you don't necessarily want to have, then they're going to have those conversations with someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And if there's a disconnect between how they, how they experience religion, if religion is kind of a box that, oh, we have a Bible reading every day, but there's no actual application to the real world. I don't see how this ties in. It's just, just, it feels like story time at night and it doesn't feel connected to the real world. Well, and I mean, that's why so many, uh, I guess, post-Christian youth who've gone into college and things like that get exposed to all of the things of the world. And then they do start to feel like what they learned growing up is a fairy tale because we don't ever mm-hmm. talk to them about the real hardships. I was at, I yeah. uh, teach the second through fifth grade Sunday school at my church. Mm-hmm. And we try more to talk about some of the hard things in the Bible, because I think a lot of times, and this is especially true for Protestants, I know, because I myself am a Protestant, we like Mm -hmm. to make everything feel pretty, right? We don't want to talk about the hard things in the Bible. We gently gloss over sin, like we knew David committed sin, but we don't talk about how deep that sin was and how much it permeated his life and how greatly he needed God. And Mm -hmm. when you don't talk about sin enough, you don't have an appreciation for how much you need God. Mm-hmm. It took me forever. There was always a real disconnect for me between my faith as I experienced it in my own personal Bible reading when I wasn't skipping anything and my faith in the context of church and what I was taught. And I felt like I was raised in, in a decent church that wasn't too focused on appearances, but it took me a long time to even connect David in the Psalms talks about his enemies. There's so much in the Psalms about wishing justice on his enemies. Right. And it has only been in the last year or so where I've been like, oh, I get it. I get it now. I I can see exactly where that's where he's coming from. (laughs) But there's that disconnect where Christianity is just this loving, soft thing. And it's not even connected with what is actually there in the Bible. That is so true. I mean, we, and I think this is kind of the heart of the issue in the modern American church. We are soft. Mm. We've become lazy. We're not out there going and sharing the word because we expect people to show up at the door. We're not going out there and doing the hard work and having the hard discussions. Mm. I think we've forgotten that, you know, Jesus and the disciples didn't live in a comfortable home. They went and they did, and they spoke to people. They got in the mess. They didn't sit around saying judgy things to people. They didn't sit around, you know, doing those types of things. They went and did the hard work. Mm-hmm. I, I sometimes like to tell my students, you know, Jesus wasn't above flipping tables when it needed to happen. <laughs> right. Yes. If we were even, even a percentage as evangelical as Christians as the LGBTQ community is, we we wouldn't be losing. They've really, it is, it is everywhere. It's a really, really powerful um, marketing campaign, if you will. No, no 
LGBTQ person gets into a position of power and then doesn't make a really big deal out of their sexuality. But if a Christian gets into a position of power, they usually keep their mouths shut. That is such a good point. And I love that you compare the evangelical nature of the church to the evangelical nature of the LGBTQ movement, because that's exactly what it is. It is an evangelical movement. They are selling a worldview. They are Mm -hmm. selling the idea that your body and how you perceive your gender may not necessarily match. And you can be one thing one day, you can be one thing another day. It doesn't matter who you're attracted to. It doesn't matter how you feel. You be whoever you want, and then you change your appearance, your hormones, whatever it takes, because it's all about you. It's all about your pleasure Mm -hmm. and your desire. That is a worldview. And it is totally counterculture to the Christian worldview. And we're sitting here on our butts. Yep. And we're we're trying to play nice with it. I I've seen it's particularly the LGBTQ movement, but it's it's large swaths of the left as well that has really co-opted the language of morality and the language of of compassion um, to really just kind of rebrand it all rainbow. And so whenever a Christian meets meets the issues, they don't know what to do and maintain their Christian compassion. Right. And I think that is one of the big problems. We've become scared of our own faith because Mm -hmm. the world sees it as wrong. But, you know, the world has always seen Christianity as wrong because, like we were saying earlier, we're always going to be against the world. Mm. I do. I don't know why, but my mom always impressed this on me and it really stuck that churches are most vibrant and most truly successful, authentically successful in places where they're persecuted. And so all my life I've thought, I don't want to be persecuted because that would be um, annoying, you know, (laughs) inconvenient and uncomfortable. But at the same time, what the American church has needed for a very long time is a little persecution you're exactly right. Well, we we could use a healthy dose of persecution to get us back on our knees and back in church. Yeah. And to separate out the people who, for a long time, there were a lot of people who found Christianity as a useful tool for their own advancement, for their own power right. and prestige and money. And I think that it, once it becomes inconvenient, once it becomes unpopular, those people get sifted out and they're the real faith remains. Right. Yeah. The health, wealth, prosperity gospel is probably one of the most damaging things to ever happen to the Christian Mm -hmm. church. It has really poisoned us to our roots. And I think it's been a hard thing for Christians to overcome and to get past. And I don't know if we fully overcome it yet. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if we need another reformation moment. Right. Another Martin Luther setting up the theses. And I think, think in a way, uh, fighting against the transgender movement, and I know we haven't really talked about life very much here, but life is another winning Mm -hmm. topic that, you know, between life and the transgender movement, I think Christians have their moment. We have our Reformation moment. We just have to be willing to take it. Yeah. And it is, it is painful. I've had conversations 
this is a personal failing of mine where I have a lot of friends, acquaintances, people of various levels of closeness who are um, either gay or trans. And I love those people in the same way. sound like a personal failing to me. (laughs) Well, I, I have a hard time not respecting pronouns. I, I want to just coast along and I want to live with the excuse of, well, this person hasn't asked me for my opinion. I don't need to offer unsolicited advice. I don't walk up to anyone and say, you know, I think you're really selfish and you should just stop. I don't call anyone else's sin out that way. And so I've used that as an excuse And, I, and I've just found it very difficult to know when is the right time to speak up and when is the right time to just leave something between someone and their God. I think that what you're talking about is a difference between the personal and the public. When you're mm-hmm. dealing one-on-one with friends, I think that's a little bit different because you're building that relationship. Mm-hmm. Building that relationship, I think, is the most important Because once you've built that relationship, then you're like, okay, maybe there will be more opportunities for conversation, more opportunities for you to witness, more opportunities for them to just see you. Because Mm -hmm. when they see you and interact with you, they hear your story, they hear how impactful God is on your life. Mm -hmm. That's how you plant the seed. And I think that is the only way you can plant the seed in personal relationships. Doesn't necessarily mean you support all their lifestyle choices, right? Just like if your friend was an alcoholic, you wouldn't take them to a bar for their birthday, right? That's true. So uh, you can still love on them in that moment, but not necessarily support their choices. But in the public, it's a little bit different. That's when you're talking about, okay, I'm not going to be respecting pronouns on Twitter. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to stand or show my support for the... uh, what is it? Drag queen story hour at the library. Like that's not okay. I'm not going to say abortion up until birth is okay. Right. So Mm -hmm. there are ways we deal with it on a personal level where we can get into the more nuanced things and ways we deal with things on the public level. Yeah. I think that's a good, good rule of thumb. And that kind of transitions into another thing I've been thinking about a bit lately is the concept of a big tent conservatism, where there are some people who say you can't, you can't be trans and be conservative, or, you know, we don't want to accept Brandy Love, the porn star into the conservative (laughs) bubble. And I think people don't know how to associate with people they disagree with. Like, I'm never going to say you can't be conservative because you have this view or because we disagree on this, this topic. I mean, there comes a point where it's like, maybe you're not conservative, Liz Cheney, but. Right. (laughs) Liz Cheney's a little bit of a different story. (laughs) But actually, I think that that's a good example. You know, there is a point at which we need to decide what our values are. I think conservatism is going through that crux of a moment where we're trying to decide where our values align. And if, if we're going to 
take a step back and separate conservatism from Christianity, because obviously a faith mm-hmm. and a political view don't necessarily have to be the same thing. You can exactly. support small government, you can support free speech without being a Christian. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I kind of struggle with where you get your founding for morality on that, but that's a different discussion. Exactly. Um, so you could be gay, you could be in the LGBTQ movement, not support the pushing of those things in schools, support small government, uh, mm-hmm. support free speech, so be pro-life, you know, you could be all of those things and still be in the conservative movement. What you cannot be is claim to be a Republican and then vote with the Democrats, <laughs> who are no longer a Republican, Liz Cheney. Yeah, yeah. I have absolutely no issue, and in fact, I'm proud to fight alongside people like Spencer Clavin, who's openly exactly. gay. Um, I don't, I think a lot of people feel like if I'm going to fight alongside this person, I have to, I have to agree with his lifestyle. And that's not true. I don't agree with his lifestyle, but I am proud to fight alongside him because I think he's an awesome person and he's doing right. a great job. I think we can't fall into the trap that the left is kind of falling into right now because Mm. they really are excising all of the non-radicals of their movement. If you are left of center, you are still Mm -hmm. not left enough for the left, right? If that makes (laughs) sense, right? People on the center are being called alt-right. So we, we can't fall into that same trap. If we want to have big tent conservatism, if we want to speak for the people and genuinely speak for the people, we can't be excising all of these people from the conservative movement. Yeah. And and back to the difference between Christianity and conservatism, you can have a conversation about what are you conserving if you don't have a, a moral bedrock, but at the same time, not everybody who who has conservative values has signed up for um, the, the moral code of Christianity. And I don't think it really behooves us to try to enforce that. Well, and that's a good point because at least if you could get them in the conservative movement, then you can get them talking. You can get them asking questions. There's mm-hmm. more opportunities to witness. If you just push people over to the other side, you've lost them. But if Mm -hmm. we can bring them in, develop those relationships, have personal conversations, share testimony, you have more chances to show them where their conservative values are coming from. Yeah. Man, this has been a good conversation. Yeah. I, we're about at time, but man, I feel like I could talk to you all evening. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) I mean, not that we couldn't. I do have your number. (laughs) Right. Well, for everyone who's listening, um, definitely go follow Real Truth Cactus on Twitter. Her handle is at Real Truth Cactus. Uh, she's a great follow, great uh, takes, great memes, all around good time. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me on. I enjoyed having this conversation. You are quite welcome. And I'd love to have you back sometime. That sounds great. All right. You have a good night and I will see you on Twitter. <laughs> you too. Good night.